Sandy may have been seen as an act of God, but let's be clear, it didn't happen by accident. For decades, big oil ravaged the environment. And big oil copied big tobacco. They used a classic cynical playbook. They denied and denied and denied that their product was lethal. Meanwhile, they spent a lot of time hooking society on that lethal product. And think about how cynical and dangerous that is. Knowing the damage that was being caused, having all the evidence in the world, and yet using all the tools at their disposal to deepen the crisis for their own profit. Were they punished for these destructive actions? No. They were rewarded to the tune of trillions of dollars. That was New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing the city's decision to divest from fossil fuels and file suit in federal court against five of the largest fossil fuel companies. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Ever wondered who should pay for the damage caused by climate change? Well, that's what we're talking about today on the Got Science podcast. After the interview, our correspondent, Shreya Dervasula, has another egregious example of the Trump administration sidelining science. For decades, fossil fuel companies have operated with what we call a social license. We assume they have a right to produce what they produce and to market it and make a profit like any other company. But what happens when the product a company makes is harmful to human health and the environment? What about when a company lies to the public about the harm? Should a company like that keep its social license for business as usual? When Volkswagen lied about its diesel emissions, the company had to pay billions of dollars in fines to regulatory agencies and consumers. When cigarette manufacturers Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds lied about their products causing lung cancer, they were held accountable in court. And since the 90s, business as usual has looked very different for cigarette companies in the U.S. We know that for decades, fossil fuel companies have funded efforts to spread doubt about climate change and whether carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels are to blame. When will these companies be held accountable for what they know, what they knew decades ago, and how they chose to operate their businesses? Today on Got Science, I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Peter Frumhoff, about fossil fuel company accountability. Peter is Director of Science and Policy and Chief Climate Scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he joined me to discuss whether it's possible to attribute specific climate impacts to specific companies and why the tide is turning on business as usual for the fossil fuel industry. Peter, welcome to the Got Science podcast. It's great to be here, Colleen. So, Peter, you've been at the forefront of scientific research to determine who's responsible for climate change. What got you interested in this work? Well, Colleen, the question of responsibility is really central to what we do about a problem. We know from the history of tobacco that public opinion shifted from the notion that individuals who smoke cigarettes were responsible for the risks of uh, lung cancer and emphysema 
to an understanding that tobacco companies were responsible. And that shift was central to the process of holding tobacco companies accountable for their contributions to the problem. That came about in part because people began to understand that tobacco companies had deceived the public on those risks, that they had sought to disinform public understanding, to misrepresent the science of the health risk of tobacco. And that led to people, for people to understand that, that companies had a responsibility for the risks that their products were causing. And in a workshop that I co-organized in 2012 in La Jolla that brought historians and tobacco experts and climate scientists together to try to understand what lessons we could draw from the history of tobacco control to apply to the challenges of climate change. We understood in that workshop that much of the same actions of deception were also taking place by fossil fuel companies, that documentation was beginning to become revealed. And a colleague there, Richard Heady, a geographer, shared with us a body of research that he had not yet published that was really quite extraordinary. He had been, in this very painstaking analysis, characterizing just how much of the climate problem could be attributed to fossil fuel companies. He was showing data, not yet published, that about two-thirds of the carbon dioxide and methane emissions that were released to the atmosphere from the use of fossil fuels could be traced back to, to just 90 companies, including many of the fossil fuel companies, Chevron, Exxon, Shell, who had been engaged in these deceptive practices. Uh, and one of the outcomes of this workshop was that it might be very helpful, in addition to raising public awareness about the deception of fossil fuel companies around the risks of climate change, to also take this data and translate it into real impacts, to be able to demonstrate just how much of the rise in sea level and the rise in temperatures could be attributed to fossil fuel companies. That science of climate responsibility was really started at that point. Without getting too technical, how did you attribute impacts of climate change to specific companies? It seems harder than tobacco, cigarettes, and lung cancer. How did you go about doing that? So let me start with what Rick Heedy had done, because we built upon that database. He went through dusty library archives and various sources of information that had not yet been collated and characterized on an annual basis, dating back to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, uh, for every year, just how much coal, oil, and natural gas had been extracted from the ground by major fossil fuel companies, translated that into units of carbon dioxide and methane that got released when their products were combusted through human activity, through driving cars and airplanes and turning on electricity. And we simply incorporated that data into a global climate model. You know, when carbon dioxide or methane gets released to the atmosphere, it's one major driver of climate change, but you have to take account of all manner of other things, volcanoes erupting, deforestation from converting a forest to um, agricultural land and the carbon emissions that come from that. There are lots of drivers of climate change. So a carbon cycle model enabled us to characterize just how much of the contribution of these major companies could be translated into the actual warming that we observed. And that's the fundamental technical basis for understanding just how much warming would we have seen with those emissions versus how much we have seen without them. So you can actually say ExxonMobil is responsible for X amount? Well, what we can say is that these 90 companies, which includes Exxon and Chevron and, uh, and other major fossil fuel companies, together 
their cumulative emissions traced to their products are responsible for about half of the rise in global temperature that we've seen since the uh, late 19th century. The, their emissions are responsible for about a third of the rise in global sea level. And yes, we can show just how much we can trace to individual companies like ExxonMobil and Shell. So when fossil fuel companies were extracting oil 30, 40 years ago, did they know this stuff was harmful? So clearly when they were doing it in the late 19th century, they didn't know. But by the late 1970s, early 1980s, the evidence is clear that they knew very well. This is 40 years ago. Scientists within these companies were briefing senior executives on the serious climate risks of continued combustion of fossil fuels and the release of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. This was aligned at the same time as the National Academy was doing its first studies on carbon dioxide and climate change. Scientists within these companies were collaborating with leading scientists at the time. And uh, they knew full well uh, that their products were risky, well before the public really understood. And what did they do? Well, they didn't do much during that early time period. They simply kept producing their products. They didn't report on the risks of their products. It was based in internal company documents. They weren't discussing it publicly. But once the evidence of climate change became clear in a public context. Uh, this was in the late 1980s when NASA scientist Jim Hansen first testified before Congress, when this became a real public issue, when the pre first President Bush talked about fighting the greenhouse effect with the White House effect, well before this became polarized in the public debate. When that happened, what did companies do? They began a massive disinformation campaign to sow doubt about the risks of their products, just as tobacco companies had done a decade or two earlier, drawing on exactly the same playbook. They trotted out misinformation, and they sought to sow doubt in order to avoid regulation. And they did so with millions of dollars by creating a number of different front groups. And um, quite successfully, they helped the George W. Bush administration avoid supporting the Kyoto Protocol. They were intentional, as internal documents of their communication strategies and of their funding have revealed, they were intentional in trying to ensure that the public didn't understand the serious climate risks of their products in order to avoid regulation. One fascinating thing that is happening now is that a number of cities and counties have filed lawsuits against big oil companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and others. And at least a couple of states are investigating whether they misled shareholders and the public on the risks of climate change. Is this unprecedented? Uh, there are now, really, over the past year or so, a series of, as you say, lawsuits in the U.S., some internationally as well, to seek to hold companies accountable for the damages of climate change and for the costs of adapting to future climate change that's now locked in. So in California, San Francisco, Oakland, um, several counties have filed these lawsuits. And they're focused on getting funding for the damage costs that sea level rise uh, affecting coastal communities uh, is imposing. And I think we're at the front end of uh, a really major lever to drive responsible action on the part of fossil fuel companies. After all, why should taxpayers alone pay the costs of the damages of climate change when companies knowingly 
sought to sow doubt about the risks of their products when they could have taken other actions. And that's what's really central. They could have done something different, but they chose not to. So where does the Trump administration fit into this picture? Well, the Trump administration is AWOL on climate policy and on climate science. They've been taking information down from uh, federal websites around climate change and um, restricting scientists from speaking out in federal agencies on the serious risks of climate change. And they've um, pulled back from the implementation of the Paris Agreement uh, and from the Clean Power Plan, all actions which have really led to a, a we're still in campaign of resistance from states, from businesses, uh, from local communities to find ways, in spite of the lack of action by this administration and by this Congress, to take the reins of climate action and make sure that we're still moving forward. I see these lawsuits as part of the we're still in campaign. There are efforts by local communities, by cities, potentially by states, to hold companies accountable, to seek to thwart their efforts to support the Trump administration and Congress's avoidance of taking climate change seriously, and to use their authority to seek to reduce the damages from climate change that their, uh, these products have been causing. I think it's a very important moment. Um, you know, where this takes us is a little unclear. But I can tell you one thing, in the history of tobacco, which I alluded to earlier, some of the original or the first lawsuits were unsuccessful in the sense that juries and judges ruled against the folks who were seeking to hold companies, tobacco companies, accountable. But they were successful in another sense. That is, the process of legal discovery led to the revealing of documents that were in tobacco companies' vaults that reinforced the legitimate public understanding that companies were lying about the risks of their products. It may well be the case, you know, my crystal ball is pretty cloudy, but it may well be in the case in 2018, perhaps 2019, these court cases can take a while, that we'll have similar uh, revelations coming out of lawsuits that are driving the release of documents so that we'll really understand the full story of what fossil fuel companies have been doing. And that itself will be a central moment in driving climate action. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can also find information on climate deception and accountability at ucsusa.org slash climate accountability. Stick around after the interview and we'll talk about who isn't giving scientific advice to the Trump administration. Now back to our interview. So I keep thinking of Houston and Hurricane Harvey and the recent reports that climate change made Harvey's torrential rains worse. How can people in disaster-struck areas use this type of analysis? Well, what we're seeing increasingly is in, in the wake of a damaging extreme storm like Harvey, like Irma, scientists are increasingly able to attribute the contribution of climate change to the severity of the damages. So really just a couple of months after Harvey's devastating impact on Houston and South Texas, um, we now have research which shows that a significant fraction of the intense rainfall that caused so much of the flooding damage would not have happened but for the 
contribution of, of climate change, of the emissions, of burning of fossil fuels, that ability to attribute damages to particular events is growing in the scientific community, the science of climate attribution. And that's a key factor that can, I hope, enable cities like Houston, states like Texas, places that are being affected, to be able to do what California is doing uh, in, these, in these jurisdictions and ask, why should taxpayers, why should affected communities alone be responsible for paying the cost? Right now, that's the default. But as we understand with greater precision not only how much of climate change in general is being driven by emissions from products of individual companies, but how much specific damage in particular locations, human lives and livelihoods, homes, uh, businesses, are being damaged to the tune of billions of dollars by climate change that would not have happened but for emissions of carbon dioxide and methane and other heat-trapping gases. Um, society in general and specifically in these most affected communities, I think have an opportunity to seek to hold those companies accountable, not in a retribution kind of sense, but in an opportunity to say, look, you guys are, have real responsibility here. These costs are enormous and they're gonna be growing. Uh, why should we be the sole holders of that burden? So aside from lawsuits, what else can be done? Well, I think we're beginning to see the rise of a whole variety of approaches to hold companies accountable, to put their, really, their social license to operate as they've been operating for decades into, into question. So in addition to the lawsuits that we're now seeing, uh, we're also seeing much more assertive actions and successful actions, for example, by shareholders. Uh, just this past year, shareholders in ExxonMobil's annual meeting successfully passed a resolution over the objections of the company, this never happens, to call on ExxonMobil to report on the climate risks associated with, of its business with um, the implementation of the Paris Agreement. How would that change their profitability, recognizing that, that we need to bring global emissions essentially down to zero in the decades ahead? Exxon wanted no part of it, but shareholders including major, very kind of conservative investors, um, stepped up and said, no, it's time to act. And Exxon is now agreeing to do this. We're beginning to see a whole variety of mechanisms, even in the absence of the Trump administration, for states, for attorneys general, to be holding companies accountable in New York and in, in, Mass in Massachusetts. Um, attorneys general are seeking to hold companies, particularly Exxon, accountable for um, fraud, shareholder fraud, associated with misinformation that they've done on climate change. These are just some of the tools. And as this becomes a public conversation, I think just like with tobacco, as the public understood then that companies were sowing doubt about their products, seeking to continue to use products they knew to be harmful, avoiding other actions they could have taken to invest in clean energy, for example, to support sensible climate policies, that the public opinion will have a significant impact on limiting the ability of companies to continue business as usual. And we'll really need significant social action of the sort that the Union of Concerned Scientists is supporting through our climate accountability campaign to hold companies publicly as well as legally and politically accountable uh, for the climate change that their products have caused. This analysis, nobody's done this 
right? I mean, Rick Heedy started this, and have other people been working on it? It just feels like breakthrough analysis. Yeah, so in the fall of 2017, I and colleagues from the Union of Concerned Scientists and a couple of uh, universities, University of Oxford and elsewhere, published for the first time science that traced changes in climate to the emissions from the products of individual fossil energy companies. No one done that before. And it's really at the front end of what I hope we'll see as an emergence of what I call the science of climate responsibility, the ability to specifically attribute not just changes in global climate, but real changes such as sea level rise uh, and coastal flooding in particular places uh, where we're seeing real damages in real time to the contributions of individual fossil energy companies. The fact is that we can now put a number on the damage that companies have caused while knowing that their products were harmful and while investing in efforts to sow doubt about their risks of their products when they could have taken other action. This science, I think, is actionable. It creates an opportunity for not just policymakers and uh, attorneys, <laughs> uh, not just the court of law, but in the court of public opinion, for people to begin to stand up and say, no, companies have to stop uh, disinformation. They need to start acting responsibly, whether it's investors or um, state attorneys general. Uh, or the public at large, we're seeing the front end, I think, of a major new movement that this science can inform to thwart the ability of fossil fuel companies, some of the most powerful companies on Earth, with a strong vested interest in continuing business-as-usual emissions, even as many of them now claim that they support, for example, the Paris Agreement, at the same time as they continue to invest in new sources of coal oil and natural gas. Uh, that this new science and the public recognition of their disinformation can create an opportunity to really move and reduce their political power, just as good science and good public advocacy did with the tobacco industry. This is a new opportunity for us, and my hope is that through the work of the Union of Concerned Scientists, our climate accountability campaign, and the emergence of the recognition that it's legitimate to hold companies accountable, just as we hold governments accountable for their contributions to climate change, and that we can put a number on it in a very powerful and specific way, that this is an opportunity to really uh, bring about change, even in the absence of political will in this administration and Congress. So what are some of the next steps for UCS? So, you know, we're producing the science, we're connecting uh, that science to actions that are taking place in the legal community and in the investor community, and we're also bringing it to the public. So, for example, we're hosting a big forum in Los Angeles at UCLA's law school to put up the question, what's the responsibility of fossil fuel companies for climate damages? Uh, we're doing this in a big public forum in a city within a state that's at the epicenter of both climate impacts and at the epicenter of climate action, including through legal action by seven cities and counties to hold companies accountable. Uh, we really want to put this in a broader public light to wrestle with the question of responsibility, to look at the legal opportunities and options, but really ask it as a societal question. You know, the notion of responsibility is not determined by science, it's determined by society. Uh, and so this is an example of a public forum, one of many that we are doing, to 
enable opportunities for people to think differently about this and to recognize that we're all responsible, but some of us are more responsible than, uh, than others. And a public forum in California will be followed by others in Massachusetts and other parts of the country as we bring this information uh, to broader light. Well, thanks, Peter. At this moment when we're feeling dismayed by the Trump administration bagging out on climate change. Um, Among many other things. Yes. <laughs> it's great to um, hear some exciting new science that is going to help us make change. Thank you, Colleen. That's it for our interview. But don't go away just yet. It's time for Sidelining Science, where we cover the latest from an administration that could take or leave scientific advice and has mostly chosen to leave it. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. Let's say you work for the Environmental Protection Agency and you're in charge of setting policy on pollution in the Great Lakes. Maybe you have a degree in chemistry like I do, but also like me, you're not a wildlife specialist, a hydrologist, or a public health expert. How would you create the best possible policy to protect people, animals, and water quality? Well, for about 30 years, the normal thing would be to convene a group of scientists and experts to help you fill in the gaps of your own knowledge. These folks would serve on a scientific advisory committee and provide you the latest research and most relevant science for your project. Then whatever policy you created would be based in science and evidence and the collective genius of dozens of impartial scientists. Now let's say you work at the EPA under President Trump. What would you do to get the best available science to make your choices? According to new research from UCS, you'd fire all your advisors, cancel all your meetings, and call your buddies in the chemical industry instead to see what they want. At UCS, we knew that the Trump administration was ignoring science and scientists and treating scientific advisory committees as disposable and irrelevant. But we didn't know how bad it was. Our researchers analyzed records of 73 scientific advisory committees across 24 government agencies, including the Department of Energy, the EPA, and the Department of the Interior. What we found was troubling. Science advisory committees at the Energy Interior Departments and the EPA met less often last year than any time in 30 years. At the Energy and Commerce Departments and the EPA, Fewer experts serve on these committees than any time in 30 years. Committee membership declined by 14% across all agencies, and the number of meetings they held dropped by 20% compared to 2016 numbers. The heads of some of these agencies are dismissing these experts outright or ghosting them. No calls, no emails, no contact. They've stalled, frozen, or disbanded these committees on the flimsiest of pretexts. So who's taking the place of these impartial scientists and experts to provide desperately needed scientific advice to federal agencies? Well, that depends on the agency. It could be industry-affiliated scientists, or more likely, it could be no one at all. And the consequences of this brain drain are serious. Advisory committees have helped us stop using lead in paint and gasoline because of its effects on children's brains. Advisory committees helped flag prescription drugs that were causing suicidal thinking in young adults. Advisory committees helped government agencies respond to crises like outbreaks of infectious diseases or natural disasters. Without scientists at the table, science is on the menu. 
And this is clear from recent analysis that found government websites scrubbed clean of references to climate change, renewable energy, or sea level rise. If you're a government science advisor who's being muzzled or ignored, head to ucsusa.org slash science protection to contact us confidentially. For other listeners, head to ucsusa.org slash action for actions that you can take to stand up for science. I'm not sure what excuse federal agency leaders are using to pretend science isn't important to setting policy, but I do know it's sidelining science. Thanks, Shreya. That's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Peter Frumhoff. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dervasula. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you like what you heard, share us far and wide. And hey, send me an email at podcast at ucsusa.org. Thanks, and see you next time. <laughs>